0: Today, on An Honorable Profession, I speak with Florida Representative Christine Hachowski. Christine was elected to the legislature in 2020. Before that, she was mayor of Parkland, Florida, a community that was rocked by the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting in 2018. We talk about her efforts to curb gun violence, how her state is managing its latest COVID crisis, and what it's like to lead a small community through a national tragedy. It's an important conversation to have right now. Enjoy. Representative Christine Havchowski, welcome to an honorable profession. It's wonderful to be speaking with you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: We are talking in early September. The kids have gone back to school, but your state is facing yet another COVID crisis. Can you talk a little bit about how things are going and what you're seeing uh, sort of on the ground in Florida?
1: Yeah, sure. Unfortunately, this Delta variant has presented a challenge to us in our state, as it has to many states throughout the country, in Florida here we've uh, exceeded records in a negative way uh, with hospitalizations. We've had actually many of our hospitals here in the county that I live in explaining that they're more full than they've been before, and the concern is having space and being able to give good care. So. We continue, at least I do, and other elected officials in the state, continue to remind people to look into getting vaccinated. It's the best uh, prevention for COVID, and it's also going to help you to hopefully not, if you do get the Delta variant, to not get it as badly and not end up in the hospital. Encourage mask wearing, and that also means doing it myself when I'm in enclosed areas and spaces that don't have good ventilation with a lot of people and then also telling people about the monoclonal antibody treatment that's available should they contract COVID.
0: And Florida has been a center for some of the polarization that we've seen around the country and starting in many ways around the world now. Are there any lessons that, that we can take from your experience in Florida? And do you see, do you see things changing anytime soon?
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So we go through hurricanes regularly in Florida, unfortunately. I've been through several myself. And, um, you know, we speak to the public then. We tell them, listen, these are the things you can do to prepare to make sure that you can give a best effort for your family, your home to be safe. And then um, we go in and we talk about the debris cleanup after the hurricane advise people on what they need to do. And here we are with a public health emergency, and there's been such incredible polarization on it, which I find, as an elected official, frightening. I find, as a mother, uh, incredibly sad, because now people won't listen to messages because the messenger has already been demonized. And for me, the concern is, it's concerning in this current situation we're in, but I'm also concerned about how we're going to be dealing also with uh, future crises. Usually, uh, this country has been known to at least uh, work to come together in times of crisis and we've had actually the exact opposite, um, at least from uh, louder voices on television and on social media. I mean, I know in the communities you see the healthcare workers, you see our doctors uh, really doing all they can uh, to keep people healthy, to uh, come out with a, a common message. And um, ask people to do what they can to remain safe, to keep themselves and their families safe. So I find it uh, incredibly concerning. Also, people don't believe uh, data. There's a every piece of data is questioned. Sometimes the sources aren't questioned about the data, and it's I think in many ways it's it's very scary in the sense that how are we supposed to help communities get through crises like this when they can be so easily politicized? And then the people we normally go to, our doctors and our nurses for advice, they're no longer, in many cases, a trusted messenger. I think that's very frightening for the future and any future crisis we and I'm not sure how we combat that.
0: Yeah, it is. It's, it's terrifying. And you've been a real advocate for just trying to get data out uh, and, and be transparent with the public. Can you talk about some of those efforts just to, just to even get the information out about vaccination rates or, and COVID rates in your state?
1: Yeah, I mean, I um, I try and get out any of information that we're given from the Department of Health. I share that information. We have delegation updates on Fridays. I literally take notes during those discussions and share the information on uh, social media. I also try and be the example uh, myself and my immediate family. We're all fully vaccinated. I'm very diligent about wearing masks. I've been around people who were unknowingly at the time had COVID, and uh, thank goodness I've been uh, fortunate enough to have not contracted it. I also speak to people on through my social media about the importance of getting tested regularly, where the testing sites are. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm testing regularly, whether it be those at-home rapid tests or PCR tests, to make sure that I'm uh, not unwittingly or unknowingly spreading the virus myself. So I, I try to stay away from, uh, the politics of it. I don't talk about uh, elected officials in any time I'm talking about this. I talk about the data even early on in the pandemic. uh, When the pandemic started, I was mayor of Parkland. I wasn't a state representative yet. And there, I just talked about the need to, there's no need to be fearful. We are given the tools as more information comes in, you know, uh, uh, recommendations might get adjusted, but we've been given the information on what we can do to keep ourselves and our families safe. So I keep talking about that message very similarly to the way I would in a heart and the way I have in the past in situations where a hurricane was approaching. I will talk to the residents about these are the tools we have the things we need to do in order to keep ourselves and our families safe. Because I think important when we're talking about a public health crisis, a natural disaster or crisis, it's really important to be very upfront with people. It's important to really communicate the facts as we have them at that moment in time and also to let people know what tools are available to them in order to keep themselves and their families safe. I think it's very important in times of crises to be very measured in how you talk about things, to talk about what you and your family are doing, and to let people know what they can do to to empower the community and give them the tools of what they can do to keep themselves and their families safe.
0: I mean, that's a very clear and sort of almost personal approach to communication. Is that something... Uh, you learned from your time as on the city council and then as, as mayor of Parkland.
1: I don't know if I learned it during that time. I, I think it's helpful when people can relate. And I think sometimes people feel that government and elected officials are separate from them. So I, I would remember when people would come to us in a city commission meetings and say, "Well, you don't understand. And I'm like, no, the beauty is I do because I actually live in this community too. While I may be an elected official, I'm still a resident of this community. I'm still a mom in this community. And I think, I guess, humanizing things and making things personal is important. I think it's important for people to know that government is not separate from them. Uh, we, the residents, uh, they're our friends, they're our neighbors, they're part of The city government, they're part of the state government, you know, they're part of what makes this all happen. The government is there to represent them. And so I think, I guess, humanizing situations, showing, you know, I'm doing this as well, I'm a little concerned now as well, this is what my family's doing. I hope it makes uh, me more relatable and for people to say, you know, this isn't just somebody who's sitting behind a desk and telling me what I should do. But this is someone who's also going through this. And when we have a concern, you know, we can call, we can reach out to her and um, she'll be with us through this.
0: How have you seen that dynamic change at all between when you're elected at the local level, as you were until last year, to now transitioning to state politics? Sometimes that, you know, that the distance becomes a little greater or it's more uh, politically polarized. What's 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 been your experience in this transition during this extraordinary time of COVID as you as you uh, entered office?
1: Yeah, so COVID has made it more difficult. Normally, one, one would be doing more community in person outreach, and that has been challenging at times, especially in Florida where we have had you know high cases of the virus spreading. And so I've tried to, in my role as a state representative, really maintain some of that local outreach. I want people to know that I'm here to serve, that that is my job, and that is what I want to do. So I do these regular town halls. We actually have one coming up in September on suicide prevention. And um, I do my regular emails. We're incredibly responsive. In fact, I've gotten very positive responses from constituents who say, I can't believe you're responding at this time of the day to my problem. I really appreciate it. Because I think one of the problems we've seen happen is that there's a lack of trust in government. And as the government position becomes a little more removed from the local level, I think that lack of trust increases. And I believe in order for us to be effective public servants, trust is incredibly important. And the way you gain trust is uh, your actions are aligned with your words. And when people are reaching out to you for help, you are doing your best to make sure they are seen and heard and that their problem is getting addressed. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have at times political differences but I try to be uh, respectful of people's differences and just explain to people how I came to the position I came to and what are some of the experiences and the stories that residents have shared with me that have also helped inform those decisions. I put out, for example, before we go into our legislative session, I put out a survey to the residents asking them for their input on um, what are their priorities I also ask people to share their stories with me on certain in certain policy areas because it helps me better understand how these policies impact people in their day-to-day lives. And these are also then stories I can share when I'm advocating on behalf of uh, my constituents. I like the personal side of public service where we remember, that we are there to help make policy that makes people's everyday lives better.
0: Absolutely. Can you talk about what are some of those policy areas that you're really focused on right now, and what kind of what kind of successes and what kind of challenges are you seeing as you try to as you try to make people's lives better?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll start with the challenges. Uh, the challenges are the politicization of some of the stuff we're dealing with. Many areas, gun violence prevention has been politicized. Covid itself, uh, how to handle the pandemic has been politicized, which is unfortunate in many ways, and I know we spoke about this earlier, but I even go back to just how our young people are seeing some of grown ups interacting on social media on television uh, it's i I think it's not a great example for our young people in how to work with one another, and how to be solution-oriented. I personally try and focus on, okay, here's, here's where we are. Here's where we're trying to go. There are many different ways to get there, and which way will we be able to be successful in at least making some progress? So obviously, politics has made a lot of this a challenge. Some of the things that I've been successful with are mental health after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, I saw firsthand uh, the challenges people had in getting the mental health care they need and how incredibly difficult the system is to navigate and um, how the different silos within the system don't talk to each other. So one of the bills I had last session was to establish a statewide commission on mental health and substance abuse. And I was fortunate enough to be able to have the support of the speaker and leadership within the House and ended up passing that through. And we actually just had our first meeting yesterday. And it's very exciting to be with this incredibly talented and experienced group of commissioners on this commission. And we're going to work to come up with recommendations to the legislature Um, On ways to improve the delivery of mental health and substance abuse services in the state of Florida for people who want to be honest with themselves and with each other. All of us have either been personally affected by uh, mental health or substance abuse or know people who have. And so I think it's really important that we talk about this more and that we put our best foot forward to address Access to mental health service, access to substance abuse, not only treatment but also uh, supportive recovery. I think with substance abuse, we sometimes focus too much on the treatment and then we forget, well, now that you've been through treatment, now what? How are you being supported in your recovery? With mental health services, whether it be mild mental health challenges from depression to anxiety, or or to the more chronic mental health issues and the more debilitating mental health issues and everything in between that we talk more about it, that people know where they need to go to get the resources they need and the support they need. I I just think it's incredibly important. I think it's something that hasn't been addressed, and I'm really grateful that it will be looked at now.
0: I think all of us in government see the challenges of our or a lack of a system for mental health and and you're right, a lack of continuous support for people who are battling substance abuse. How do you take a problem that's so big, so complex, with, you know, a federal government piece and a state government piece and a local piece and a nonprofit piece and and try to get towards a solution. How do like so you launch this commission, how do you know what success looks like?
1: I guess we're going to find out, aren't we? <laughs> I think <laughs> success is first. I mean, what I like about this commission is we have people who have, are come from all different perspectives on in the mental health and substance abuse area. People who themselves have been uh, treated, have had uh, addiction issues, uh, j- judges. Uh, we have people from police. We have people who are caretakers. We have people who are uh, providers. And so it really, everybody's going to be bringing uh, their own experience to this. And I think the first part is identifying what all those issues are. And there, like you said, there's federal issues, state issues, federal funding, how that funding is kind of divvied up, how it's uh, regulated, whether there's enough flexibility within that in order to draw down the necessary funding. I think the bigger question in this becomes, how do you make the system more patient care focused and less funding slash silo focused? So our first job is to identify um, where these uh, problem areas are or where these barriers are. And we started doing that at our first meeting and then seeing which ones uh, we can work toward eliminating. And uh, we're in the middle of it. If I had the answers, um, that would be great. But the point of a commission is that no one person will have the answers. Uh, it'll be all of us working together to hopefully figuring this out.
0: You briefly mentioned that you've been trying to move legislation around gun violence, obviously, after your experience in Parkland. Can you talk a little bit about your efforts to, to respond both, both within Florida and nationally to, uh, to address this issue and how it's going?
1: Yeah, so actually after the shooting, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Act that passed, um, I had testified up at the state house at the time in favor of that bill. One of the best parts from a gun violence prevention perspective that happened in that bill is that we established risk protection orders in the state of Florida. Uh, which means uh, someone can be brought before a judge uh, to say that they are a threat to themselves or someone else. Obviously, they go through due process. If it is deemed that they are a threat or a danger to themselves or someone else, uh, their weapons can be removed from them, and then they have an opportunity to go back in front of the courts to prove um, that they're safe now and they could have them back. And I think I've testified also up in front of the gun violence prevention panel up in um, D.C. I've met with legislators on all levels of government, with the president at the time, advocating for universal background checks. This is something where I think over 90 percent of the country is in favor of it, and yet it's still not passing And when I talk to people who support the risk protection orders, I mention that it's important to also have these universal background checks because otherwise the red flag um, or the risk protection order won't show up without doing a comprehensive background check. Uh, My goal in all of this is to make sure that those who are a threat or uh, intend harm to themselves or someone else are not in possession of a weapon. And um, I think that's incredibly reasonable. There have been many groups supporting along the way. Unfortunately, this is also, in many cases, a very politicized topic. I don't think it needs to be, because I think when you speak to most people, it's not really political, but it's been made political. And um, there are very strong forces out there who don't want this to happen.
0: I guess my question is, so, so how, do we, how do we take the next steps? Obviously, both you and the students and families uh, from your community have, have been national leaders on this and really moved the conversation forward. How do the rest of us uh, support you in getting it uh, across the line?
1: In the end, as with any advocacy, you have to vote people into office who share your priorities. So I think one of the things people can do is support candidates who uh, support their values and their policy issues. And in this case, for me, it's gun violence prevention. I think it's important that you know, we have uh, leaders who want to prevent gun violence and want to make sure that you know, people who have access to weapons are not a threat to themselves or someone else. And I don't see that to be an earth shattering, (laughs) disruptive idea seems to me to be very common sense as it does to many people. And um, I just think with um, the way the political system is set up, we just have not had enough strong voices in elected office who have felt that same way.
0: Well, let's hope that, that we get to that reasonable point At, at minimum. At
1: minimum.
0: Yeah. At minimum, uh, as we start a new school year and pray that we aren't going to be experiencing the many tragedies we've seen over the years. I'd like to get perspective or talk a little bit about what it was like. Are many listeners on this podcast are uh, elected officials or aspiring elected officials. And, you know, you went from a mayor of a city of 30,000 people sort of dealing with the day-to-day challenges of of being a mayor to suddenly helping a community that's gone through an unimaginable trauma and at the same time is an international story where where people are looking to you to, to provide context and information. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and what are the lessons learned for those who are in public service or entering public service on how they can be there for their community if, if a tra- when a tragedy occurs?
1: Yeah, that day uh, changed the lives of so many in our community. It changed our community. It changed me in many ways. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't wish we could go back to February 13th, 2018. And um, I say that because I don't think people always understand how deep uh, gun violence hurts uh, not only the families of those who lost loved ones who were murdered, um, but also the trauma associated with it, uh, the trauma associated in the community. Everybody who was at the school that day uh, will never be the same again. Uh, the families who now have the empty bedrooms at home will never be the same again. And um, I say that because, you know, the new cycle moves on and um, and the communities still deal with the pain and the trauma uh, for the rest of their lives. And I like to talk very openly about that because I think um, until we talk openly about the after effects of gun violence, um, we're not really going to have the political courage to, you know, deal with it. From a perspective as an elected official, you never know, I guess, when a crisis is going to hit your community. And I was lucky that I met Nicole Hockley, whose son Dylan um, had been murdered at Sandy Hook. I met her within the first 48 hours after the shooting and she had warned me about the division that would happen in the community that in the beginning after a mass shooting everybody's going to come together and then there would be divisions throughout the community on every issue regarding pretty much everything and she was completely correct about that. So in the beginning when all the news cameras were here I I actually remember um, that day hearing uh, at first, uh, it was three people who had been killed, and then it was seven. And once I heard the number 11, I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, we are now that city. And by that city, I'm thinking of Columbine, I'm thinking of Newtown. And I remember thinking at that moment, all that people normally talk about after these mass shootings is the killer. And I wanted to focus on the people of my community. I wanted my community to be seen. I wanted my friends and my residents and constituents who were hurt that I wanted the people to know that there were real people behind this tragedy. These weren't just numbers these were real families, good people who were suffering. So I tried to stay very focused on talking about my community. I also knew when the cameras were there that while other people might be watching, um, my community would be watching. and I wanted the community to know that we would get through this one way or another because we were strong. We are a strong community. I focused very much on my residents because, so when something like this happens, all these people come in, people you've never seen before in the community, people who aren't necessarily connected to the community. And then as a local elected, you know, there are only so many things we have any influence over. In Florida, we have a lot of preemption, so we can't, as a local elected, I'm not going to be you know, the one driving the state law change, I can support change in it, but I can't actually change it, if that makes sense. So I chose to focus on healing the community. I was very concerned about the divisions I had been warned about, and I didn't want us to end up a broken community afterward. So there were those who were pushing on the state level, and I supported those efforts. I went up to Tallahassee uh, several times in the aftermath to advocate that we got funding for mental health support, for school safety, and also for firearm safety. But then I really did focus wholeheartedly on the community. I think it's very important in a time of crisis, to speak, you know, from the heart. I think it's important to let people know uh, that you are there for them, that you're going to be there for them no matter what. I had people who would call me and scream at me on the phone, and um, those people ended up becoming uh, some of my best and most helpful allies in helping the community through this.
0: Let me ask this because so I, I've 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 been a mayor and now I'm a county supervisor and you know uh, last summer 925 homes burned down in my community. There there are those moments where people are calling and they're yelling because they need somebody to yell at, and you're the person that's sort of most accessible <laughs> to be yelled at. And it's sort of how do you, how did you manage your mental health and the demands on your time as, as you sort of, ha- it's one of the roles that, that you play is to, to be, to absorb some of that pain for people because they, they have to figure out a way to, to express it. Cause there's just so much, they have so much built up inside. How did you manage that?
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't think in the beginning, I did a good job with myself Uh, For me, it was important. I went to as many of the funerals as I could. I went to... It was very hard to get information in the aftermath. Uh, There were so many different organizations around. So I went to pretty much every meeting I could go to. And um, yeah, it was was rough. People are angry. Uh, People are understandably angry. And it was my job to be accessible. It was my job to... Weather that anger, and it was my job to make sure that wherever I could, that people got the help they needed. I stayed very focused. For me, I'm very I have a very strong sense of responsibility and duty. So for me, what was helpful was always remembering why I was there, what my role is. And I very clearly saw my role as to help my community through this, especially from a healing perspective, also making sure going anywhere and everywhere I could to make sure that resources were coming into the community to help the community through this. It was two months pretty much after the shooting where it was the first time that I had trauma therapy. I had several sessions of trauma therapy that were incredibly necessary. People don't usually like to talk about that. I'm not only talked about it then. I had posted uh, pictures on social media encouraging others to do the same. And um, so, as an elected official, I have to say I'm very blessed with a supportive family, uh, really good friends, and um, those. Especially those first two months afterward, I was not very available to my family or my friends. But I was very involved in the community and just really focused on what was my job. And that helped me. And then, like I said, I had the trauma therapy. And that was also incredibly helpful um, because whenever it's first responders, elected officials, it's anybody in the community who's around, you know, these things are incredibly traumatizing. It's very important to take care of yourself. Otherwise, you will not be able to be effective in helping others.
0: It feels like the shooting just happened yesterday, but it will be four years in February. Talk about how the community is doing and those divisions that you talked about. Have have they been mitigated in any way? What that healing looks like?
1: Yeah, the divisions are definitely not as intense as they were right after the shooting. But you can still see there were people who were here during the shooting. We've since had people uh, move into the area who don't have the same attachment to or lived experience of the shooting. And so there's a group that wants to remember. There's a group that doesn't want this to be forgotten. And then there's another group that this wasn't part of their lived experience and it isn't as honored or acknowledged, if that makes sense. I think um, many people didn't get the help they needed early on and saw the ramifications of that later and are still working through it. I know we have several students who were at the school that day who are still dealing with increased anxiety, panic attacks, and um, are still, you know, working to get you know the tools they need to help with that. So, even though it'll be four years in February, uh, for those of us who were here that day, uh, many days were brought back immediately when certain things happen. For example, we had a lockdown at West Glades, which is the middle school right next to the high school. I want to say it was about maybe six months ago, a little over, or maybe a year ago. I, I apologize. I don't remember exactly when it was. And hearing the helicopters, hearing that it's on lockdown, uh, even though it ended up being uh, nothing major, it brought every, uh, the people who were here. Even if they didn't have kids in the high school, even if their kids were only in elementary school, it brought everybody who was here kind of back to that day. And that's when I get the phone calls again. So it isn't as intense, the division, but it's still and the pain isn't as intense all the time, but it's still just below the surface in many ways.
0: Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, let me just say thank you for your leadership, both for your community, but, you know, it, for the nation that sort of experienced experienced that event and too many other events like it uh, and was looking for people who were, were caring and concerned uh, about the families and the friends and their community. It was uh, your voice was an important one.
1: Thank you. And if I could just say there have been too many since then. I often will call uh, communities that experience uh, similar gun violence and it's been too many phone calls. It's been too many communities and um, each one of the communities will continue to experience this on some level.
0: Well, That's why we, we need that national action as so many of the students and young people from your community uh, have consistently demanded since that shooting, uh, and hopefully someday we'll get there. I want to wrap up with just curiosity. You, you came, uh, you got sort of involved in your community, and then worked city commission and mayor, and now state legislature. How do you think about public service and and what's next for you as you figure out the ways to to get that change and serve that serve the community you care so much about.
1: Yeah, it's so funny. I never thought I would ever run for elected office. So, to me, it's kind of interesting that I'm here where I am today. You know, for me, it was, we moved down here. Uh, We had no family, no friends. I wanted to get involved in the community, and I volunteered and became engaged, and I was going to commission meetings then, and it just kind of was a natural evolution, if that makes sense. Public service can be one of the most rewarding jobs because it's not just a job it's you're also making a difference it's pretty amazing for anybody who's been through an election process to see where people support you being their voice whether it be on a local level or on a state level and it's quite an awesome responsibility as well it's also an opportunity to kind of highlight those local voices, those everyday experiences. And um, I love that part of public service. It can get frustrating because it's not as easy to get things done as one would like. But I also feel that there are always opportunities to make some progress. It might not be all the progress you want, but there are always opportunities to make some progress. As for what my future holds, uh, we start session. We have our committee weeks coming up uh, the end of September, and I am singularly focused on having a good session. It will be a different session than last one was. Last Mm -hmm. one we had COVID. The Capitol was closed off. The session will be open. We have redistricting coming up, which will be, I'm sure, a huge topic throughout the session. And I look forward to kind of seeing what this next session is like. And um, we'll take it from there.
0: Well, hang in there. <laughs> Keep fighting the fight. Good luck with COVID and redistricting and, and everything else, mental health, substance abuse, uh, all the issues that you're taking on and trying to, trying to improve and welcome to the new deal. It's wonderful to have you part of this network of leaders. And we look forward to hopefully gathering sometime in person soon and sharing, you know, uh, ideas and policies that that we can all uh, steal from one another and, and implement back in our communities.
1: And that's one of the beautiful things about the new deal. I was so excited to be included and, um, you know, we can really learn as elected officials also from each other of what's worked in different areas. And it's interesting to hear people who have really made a difference in their communities and what worked for them and often coming up with these out of the box ideas that really made a difference. So I'm so excited to be part of this. And thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.